The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Welcome to Spectrumly Speaking. I'm Becca Laurie, your house Aspie, your favorite globetrotter, and maybe your favorite dog mama. And I'm joined here by Dr. Kate Cody. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist who practices in New York City. Um, I work with kids through adults on the autism spectrum, and I supervise and train graduate students and postdocs so that we have more clinicians who are readily able to support this community. How was your week, Becca? It was good. It was actually, I have in a, like a crazy time in my life right now. I'm trying mm. to move and trying to pack up my life, um, but I'm also working at the same time. So it's a lot of stress for me. Um, but this last weekend was a, a travel work weekend for me, so it was even more so. So I'm going to pre-apologize to everybody now because I am still having recharge issues, and so my language isn't fully back from being tired. Um, and I'm just having kind of slip-ups like that uh, still. And that's what happens, I guess. So this is what it sounds like. <laughs> and how was your week? Good. Super busy also. Um, you know, it, the thing I was most grateful for this week is that this weekend it was so nice and actually spring-like here in New York. Um, we've had kind of like the slowest emergence of spring ever, it feels like. Um, and so I was super grateful to get out and like into the park yesterday and the cherry blossom trees here are blooming and sunshine was out and I was like just so happy to be outside. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how different it is? Like the weather can change how you feel so much. I know. You so much. It, you don't, I, we really don't realize it, I think, until it happens, until you're really deprived. And here in New York, we get so deprived in the wintertime of sunshine and outside time and fresh air, having your windows open and stuff like that I feel like by the time the spring comes I'm like oh good it's like 65 degrees I think I can open my windows all up <laughs> like stay yeah, in my coat yeah. inside don't care yeah yeah I was just so happy to be outside yesterday in the sunshine it was like oh finally yeah. um so today our guest is uh, Carol Feldman Bass. Carol is the founder of Social Dynamics a totally unique interactive style of learning that combines improvisation psychodrama and social pragmatics, or as she likes to call it, social expansion, to help individuals gain confidence and overcome social anxiety. Carol's special skills are in creating a nurturing, non-threatening, and fun environment where socially uncomfortable individuals can learn, communicate, and blossom. She is a certified life coach and has partnered with the Asperger Autism Network since 2009. She continues acting and performing at the True Story Theater in New England and is co-director of the American Society of Group Psychotherapy and Psychodrama. Welcome to the show, Carol. Thanks. Welcome to me being here. <laughs> <laughs> We're so glad to have you. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. And it shows how excited I am that I'm just like, is it you? Is it me? <laughs> no, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, so we really like to start off by asking our guests, um, if you don't mind, can you tell us how you became involved in the autism community? Well, it first began when I realized, um, there's some of it in my family, but I was in that first stage that always, oh, it's not that much. It's not going to really affect anything. So that was way back in 2006. And at that point, so before that I had been a practicing attorney in a um, very large 
Utility Corporation in New England and had done real estate and employment law. And what had happened when I became an employment lawyer within this corporation, I realized because I was taking some mediation courses on the side that people want to tell their story. That's really what they want to do. They don't want to fight. They don't want to get into litigate. They want to tell their story. But, of course, when you bring back the they don't want to fight to another bunch of lawyers, they don't agree with you. I apologize if I'm offending any other lawyers out there. Um, so it was not the place for me. Now, the thing is that on the side, even as I was practicing corporate law, I was doing professional improvisational comedy at night. So I would have a secret life. I would get home at about three o'clock in the morning and then wake up about eight o'clock and be a lawyer and then go out at night about 11 o'clock and be a comic. <laughs> so it was kind of fun. Um, but then when I left being a lawyer, I needed to go. So where next? What am I going to do next? So I became a life coach. That didn't really hit it. Then I became a divorce mediator. That didn't really hit it either. And then I studied psychodrama. And the thing about psychodrama, it was fascinating to me because it was all about show me, don't tell me. It was directly sort of out of my background of theater and improvisation. And so it appealed to me as some sort of um, helping community, helping therapeutic something. There was a value to this type of work, this type of psychodramatic action work. So I started training. But. I was training, but I was still not really working. So I went to AANE, which at that time was the Asperger's Association of New England. And I went to its director and I said, I'd really like to do an improv class for young, young teens on the spectrum. And she said to me, nope, that's not what we need. What we need is a dating group for older people on the spectrum. And I, having no idea what I was stepping into, said, okay, as long as I can do it in action. And they agreed. And that's when I started my first action group called The Dating Game. And then it was off from there. And then it became social dynamics years and years later. That's an interesting way to get into the autism community. Absolutely. It, it was a total accident. <laughs> it was like, I don't want to do that, but okay, I'll try it. Well, can you tell us a little bit about what social, social dynamics does? So I can't really separate who I am from my work. And I actually, a little sort of side note, I think things didn't always fit with me because I was trying to do that. I was trying to separate sort of the core person who I am from what I want to do for a living, not understanding that when you combine both, you really love what you do. And I love what I do. And that is what social dynamics is. And the little tricky part is that it's social dynamics, M-I-X. So there you got that little pun on we're going to mix it up. We're going to mix you together. It's going to be a, a mix of all different things. And kind of that's what it is. Um, I do group work. I do individual work. I do couples, neurodiverse couples work. I do it individually with groups. I do it in um, collaboration. I do family work also in collaboration. But there is always that piece of action involved, that piece of show me what happened. Don't just use words. Don't tell me. I want to see it. I want to see it so we can work at it. We can look at what it really is. What is the real story? 
So what I've done is I've made a program that combines um, the stories, but in a structured way. They they use the stories of the people for whatever reason, if they want to have social expansion, if they want to have the ability to advocate for themselves, if they want to get along with their partner, if they want to be able to be better parents to the kid, their child, they just found out was diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. So I take those stories, they're real stories. And we look at them and we examine them and we dissect them and we sort of say, okay, what was really going on here when you said that? What, what did it feel like when your partner said, um, I knocked down the shed in the backyard that you wanted me to knock down? And your reaction is, but I didn't want you to do that today. How could you do that today? You just don't listen to me. But in reality, when I translate and I translate psychodramatically by using a term or using an action called a double and a double is somebody who takes a guess, goes underneath the words and finds the emotion. So if the words of the partner are, I, I knocked down that, that, that shack in the back today that you didn't want. Well, that sounds very harsh to the neurotypical partner. But what the neurodiverse partner is trying to say, or anybody's trying to say, is, I love you. I, I did that because I love you. But that's not what is said. So therefore, that is not what is heard, even though that's really what is there. So through all of these little action methods, I, I reverse roles with people so they can be in them in the position of the person who feels that negative like, uh, this doesn't feel comfortable when you stand this close. Oh, when you keep talking about a topic and you don't let me in, I don't want to be here. But now they're the person that are experiencing how they affect that person. And it's a very, to be very honest, it's not always the best feeling because it is a true aha moment. It is a moment when you go, oh, really? That, that's really what it is? And it's like, well, yeah, so now let's make it what you want. So, Carol, in your kind of description of social dynamics, you really kind of identify three areas that you use um, in terms of like intervention. And that's improvisation, psychodrama and social expansion. Can you kind of just talk a little bit about each of these and how they kind of, um, you know, are beneficial for helping individuals on the spectrum? Mm -hmm. So. Let's start with improvisation. When you think of improvisation, you think of comedy improvisation. That's set up, set up, set up, joke. And it's all about sort of being outrageous, being connected, but always it has a joke. It has an ending that's a punchline. But that's not what true improvisation is. Really, true improvisation is life. We are constantly being called upon to be spontaneous. We are constantly being called upon to say yes and and what do you want? Yes, I'll go to lunch. And where do you want to go? That's a conversation. That's small talk. That's what a lot of people are on the autism spectrum or have high functioning Asperger's or whatever label we want to put on it. Those are the things that they are terrified of because it seems complicated. But by using improvisation, it's part of the game. It's like, how, how long can you keep a yes and conversation going? And then there's another rule, and this is a strict improvisation rule, which is let go of your agenda. 
which as we know is so hard. It's like, no, 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 my idea is right. My idea is right. Well, it may be, but right now it's Mary's idea that's being performed and you need to add to Mary's idea, not take away from Mary's idea because the audience is going to get confused. So again, there's a social inter, there's a social expansion just from that because you're talking about being in a group, talking in a group, but it's fun. All right, here's an example. So I'm working with this uh, group of young men. They're somewhere between the ages of 16 to 18. We sort of always end our groups with an improvisation form because it's fun. So this young man, we were doing something called um, 999, which is basically they have to do an info commercial. And it's an individual game. But what happened was this one young man was using some little toy I had in, in my office as a specifically called a pinata breaker. And he had this great little infomercial. And then one of the guys who is often a guy who cannot let go of his own agenda and always needs to be focused, ran to where I keep like my little stash of candy in a, in a clear plastic container and stood there, held it up as the pinata. And it was the most beautiful thing because he didn't say anything. He didn't change the topic. He added to his friend's story. That's always, that's what we want. We want that adding. We don't want that. No, look at me over here. So that's how I use improvisation. So that it's a, it's not about one person. It's about the group. Sometimes you're the star. Sometimes you're the group. You got to figure out when it's best. It also is play. And, and I know that wasn't sort of one of the three major things, but, but play is so important. And I think it is even more important in a particular community that is often told they are doing everything wrong. You're not even playing right. Well, how can you how can you play if you're if you're told that you're not playing right? I mean, what does that even mean, playing right? But that's that's an, a pretty common experience that everything they've ever tried that was playful was not right. So we got to get rid of that. Got to get that out of their minds because life is playful. And it's more fun when it is. So then the other piece, so psychodramatic techniques. So psychodrama is a modality that was um, discovered by a man named Dr. Moreno. Um, and he was a psychiatrist. And this was back pretty much as a contemporary of Freud. And it's an expressive therapy modality. It is not drama therapy. It is psychodrama, which means it is the drama of the one. So. What I do, if if we can, um, there are definitely little structures, specific structures that are measurements of anxiety, measurements of, um, you know, how much do you think you're good at dating? How, you know, how well do you think you do small talk? How all these different measurements so you can see who's in the room with you and who allies with you and who gets it. Um I, I, I try very hard for there to be enough people in the room that can look across and say, I see me in you, because I think that's important. If I can get these little psychodramatic scenes of something that really happened, then we can look at it and we can then work with it. So an example of that is this young man walked into his 
dorm room and um, his roommate was not there. And every um, dresser drawer had been every, every dresser. One drawer had been used out of every dresser in this double. And then the young man was like, I have no place to put my clothes. I, 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 I and he stood there and he started crying and he had a meltdown in front of his parents. Mm. So that was the scene that this person who's and it was a scene based upon a real thing that had happened. But this was for someone who was going to go to college. It was a real story. So we worked on that. We worked on role training. How do you tell your roommate? No, <laughs> I need to do. How do you do it in a way that it doesn't sound mean? It doesn't sound off putting. And so you role train. That's psychodramatic. You keep trying. But the feedback comes from my group, comes from the audience. And they come up and they go into the role of you and they show you, try it this way. And then they speak from your voice to the roommate who has taken up every other dresser. And so finally, in this one, we figured out what this young man was going to do if this type of situation was going to happen. Because I actually know from other kids I know that it is more frequent than we think that mm -hmm. kids are feel entitled to every space in a, in a double. If they get there first. Mm -hmm. And the third one was expansion. Uh, it is social pragmatics in that very traditional term of art, social pragmatics. In my mind, I like to sort of refer to it in my groups as expansion because it's an expansion of what you want. It's not an expansion of what I want. I mean, I want success for everyone who comes in my office and my groups, but I want what they want. If they want success, if they want expansion, that's what we work on. You can't tell somebody what they should do. They have to want to do it. So some really, really important points. How much do individuals versus group approaches shape teaching the social expansion that you cover? Um, the only way it shapes it is um, in terms of how long I've known the person in an individual um, interaction. I do the same things in both group and individual work. There may be some things I do in individual and in group work that are not the same because it's got at least eight people in it, um, various ages. Um, so there will be group work, but then there will be individual work. And that individual work is how I work with people if they just come to see me on their own. Um, the deep changes that happen with individual versus group is that when I have an individual person and I've been working with them for more than just, let's say, a few weeks. And because of my personality and their personality, and if I have broken through and there is that feeling of she really gets me, she knows she can speak what I'm saying. Like she gets me and she's not going to. BS me. You know, she's, she's not going to tell me what to do. She's not going to trick me into anything. She's not going to tell me something that I don't believe is true. She's going to listen to me. So once that connection is made, I can push. And I can push in a way that is a loving push, but is a push that is nonetheless a bigger push than they might have gotten in a group. Because I never want to put anyone in an embarrassed or judged position, even if that's not what I'm doing. I don't want it ever to be perceived that way. 
But if I'm an individual, but if I've known a group a long time, I may push as well. But with individuals, I just keep pushing and pushing like so that it becomes like, okay, I'm seeing it. Cause, and I use scars and I concretize how I push. So they can see the choices they're making as I'm sort of pushing them. Not saying the choices they're making are bad, but just seeing the choices as I push them more towards into what the reality they may be experiencing will be like. Carol, how do you use the social dynamics approach when working with neurodiverse uh, couples? Um, yes. So social dynamics. So we, so I collaborate um, both with Grace Myhill, who is an expert on neurodiverse couples. And then I also do individual work with neurodiverse couples at my office in social dynamics in Massachusetts, Needham, Massachusetts. And I may there also um, co-collaborate with my husband, um, Dr. Jonathan Bass, who's also a psychiatrist who specializes on with people on the spectrum as well. Medication, diagnostic, all of those. So I always sort of have somebody um if I'm co-leading a group that might get into more of the diagnosis that I really don't want to get into any of the actual neurology, you know, deep biology, neurology, any of the scientific stuff, I want to have somebody there who's an expert on it because I, I can't call myself an expert on that. But anyway, so when we work in, and I work with neurodiverse couples, um, it's all about perspective, all of it. I mean, you can do different structures. You can do the underlying feelings. You can do the translation, the communication. But understanding the perspective and understanding what people are really saying and doing and not your perception of what they are saying and doing can become life-changing for these couples. And by using a lot of psychodramatic techniques, um, role reversal doubles, concretizing. Grace and I came up with this thing that we call the tale of spontaneity. And it's all about how someone who is neurotypical may think out 47 different steps about something. One example is uh, mom leaves the house, leaves kid with the dad. Dad's supposed to make a bath. Fine. Great. Mom leaves, comes home, Kid has not taken a bath. Kid now is going to, has gone to bed dirty, stinky, kind of greasy. Mom loses it. But why? Dad doesn't understand. I played with him. It's more important to play with him, right? Well, yes and no. Because mom can see he doesn't take a bath. Therefore, he's going to go to school dirty. Therefore, he's going to get made fun of. He's going to smell. He's going to look greasy. No one's going to come up to him. He's going to get called more names. He already has problems. You're making more. And on and on and on and on and on and on, where the neurodiverse person is looking going, oh, I only saw one step, but they see it. So it's that seeing of perspective. It's the role reversing. It's being in the space of your of your partner and, and saying, I get this space now. Can I ask, what role does effective self-advocacy play in the work that you do? So I think effective self-advocacy is something that we do every day, if we know it or not. You know, I mean, you ask for I want that muffin at the coffee shop and they give you the bagel and either you walk away with the bagel and go, oh, I'm not going to bother. Or you say, um, excuse me, I 
order the muffin. You know, that's advocating. That's standing up and saying, I want what I want. I want what I ordered. So it's the, I want what I want. Or I am who I am. And I sort of look at it as self-advocacy is really telling your story about what you need before somebody else makes it up for you. Because we all make up stories. We meet someone for the first time and we immediately go, ah, I bet you he's intelligent. I can tell from the way he's dressed like. Oh, he's got bright eyes. He must be very curious. Oh, look at his feet. He must do on and on. We make up stories. It's human nature. But if you are a person who doesn't make up stories and couldn't believe that somebody is doing that, you need to tell your story. You need to tell what you need. You need to say what you want. And this comes up, let's say, between a teen and his parents, her parents, their parents. It comes up. How do you tell somebody who you love and admire and adore and do not want to displease that you disagree with their assessment of a situation? And you're going to tell them the truth about a situation. I mean, an easiest example of this in a very small term. I mean, you know, when we think of advocacy, we, we think of very bigger issues, social issues, bigger. They're not. They're, they can be tiny, tiny things that those of us who can can just like, you know, toss them off our shoulder. Not a big deal. One young gentleman, it's prom season. Parents go, of course you need to go to the prom. Everybody goes to the prom. Oh, you're not going to miss the prom. No, of course not. You are going to do this. Kid is like, I don't want to do this, but, always that but, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to find a date. So we sat there, and I was like, I'm hearing two different things. I'm hearing the thing you are being told you should like, and the thing you do not like. So why do you have to do what you are being told you should like if you don't want to? So we spent hours like that. I mean, we went sessions over this until he said to his parents, I don't want to do this. It's not fun for me. I don't, I don't want to do this. And the response was not his perception of what the response was going to be. The response was, Oh, okay. So what do you want to do? So a lot of times that advocacy, whatever type of self advocacy is, is constrained by fear. And it's fear of an unknown because of the stories that the neurodiverse person is making up about the other person. You know, he's making up stories that she's going to be disappointed. She's going to be angry. She's going to be this. She's going to be this. Dad's going to be this. Dad's going to be. They're not. But he needs to say, I want this. Carol, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you, if our listeners are looking to find out more about you, can you tell them um, where they can find you? So um, my name is Carol Feldman Bass. Um, the business, my business, <laughs> is called Social Dynamics. And as I said before, the only trick is it's not Social Dynamics, M-Y-I-C, it's social dynamics, M-I-X, M-I-X. So you're mixing. Um, and that's the website. It's carol at socialdynamics.net is, will come directly to me. The general website is www.socialdynamics.net. 
Um, my telephone number is, um, so the office line is 781-559-3196. And my cell, nine, cell number is 781-540-9486. Um, and since I'm often around both of them, I will get you either way. But if you really want to talk to me as soon as possible, call myself and I'll call you back as soon as I can. I think we're going to move into a conversation now kind of building on the last part of what you talked about, which is a lot of like the self-advocacy components. Um, and I th we're excited that you'll be able to join us. I'm thrilled um, too. I, even if I just sit to listen, it's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, you know, as I'm like listening, you know, so much, and I'm going to speak as a clinician, uh, first Becca, and then, you know, obviously please jump in if that's okay. Yep. Um, yeah. So, you know, as I like listen to, you know, what Carol's talking about in terms of self-advocacy and kind of applying it to this whole concept of like social expansion, which I think is a much a friendlier way of talking about um, just kind of how we improve social functioning in the areas that an individual wants to. Um, and, you know, I find so much of the time that in the work I'm doing, you know, I'm I'm having to check my own social values um, and making sure that I'm not imposing them on the individuals I work with. I'm having to kind of gauge, well, what are the parents' social values and how much are they imposing them on um, their adult children or adolescent children? Or what is the spouse's social values? Like all these things. And I think that one of the things that I find, um, you know, so challenging for neurotypical people to understand much of the time is that, you know, what my definition of a socially fulfilling life might be could be incredibly different from what any other individual's definition of a socially fulfilling life is. Um, and I find I, I have to like do a fair amount of work with the individuals I work with and kind of defining, well, what does that look like for them as a person? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, you know, and then, how, and then how do they like, express that to the other people in their lives that like, no, no, this is what I want. And, and, you know, and kind of finding that balance. Um, and I know Becca, I think, you know, you've talked about this before that even in your own, you know, experience that you've, you know, noted that that can sometimes be difficult to express to other people. Absolutely. Um, I think what I'm hearing, what I hear even, you know, through all that you were talking about, Carla, is it's that really people on the spectrum are told so much that what we do naturally is, is not what we're supposed to be doing, that we mm -hmm. learn this habit of just not trusting our gut at all about anything. Um, and mm -hmm. with that habit comes the inability to kind of know where to go next. And I think that's really um, a source of much of the anxiety that we live with. And I think for me, in terms of, of social stuff, you know, absolutely, there are, there are the giant supposed tos that life kind of throws at you um, all the time. And, and we certainly grow up hearing whatever those supposed tos are, whether you're spectrum or not, you hear them from your family uh, in the beginning, right. certainly. Um, and that's where we develop sort of this idea of who we're supposed to be and what our goals are supposed to be. Um, but I think as people on the spectrum, because our, our brains are so different and because we just, you know, experience life so differently, um, our choices and our desires are certainly not found along that traditional path. Um, and so what happens is there's a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of kind of being willing to do things that aren't necessarily your choice. Um, because there right. isn't a way, there isn't, um, no one gives you the choice. There aren't options right. presented to you. There, um, nobody teaches you how to make 
decisions that are against the grain and how to do those properly. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of mixed messages that we get. Um, and for me, on top of the fact that um, I'm also on the spectrum is the fact that I'm an introvert. And so on top of it, my personality is right. not one that wants to socialize. And so having to um, explain that to people my whole life, how the idea of having a birthday party was just about the last thing that I'd want to do. In right. fact, I'd rather have my molars pulled with no Novocaine right. before right. I have a birthday party about me. Um, and instead, I would get punished for that. I was told a lot, well, you're taking it away from everyone else, the ability to celebrate for you for your birthday. And I was made to feel very guilty about the fact that I didn't want that done. But what was happening for me on, on this particular occasion was that, first of all, attention was centered around me and things were happening that I wasn't part of the decisions of. Um, and it was just like, whether or not you like it, this is happening. Um, and uh, also, it was a lot of noise always that went along with birthdays. There weren't food choices. There were a lot of social rules you had to follow. So there's nothing about it that was appealing to me. Um, and in fact, on top of it, it didn't make sense to me. Like, why are all of these people giving me stuff right. that I don't want? They're all giving me and stuff I, I don't want, I and I didn't, didn't right. And <laughs> I used to start to say, well, tell people not to bring me stuff, and then I'd get guilted about that. Well, you know, you're taking away them the ability to, get, to give you something, to celebrate you, that you know you're taking this away. And so I eventually became really adamant about it when I reached a point where I was, I had learned to advocate for myself. I could say, well, if you want to celebrate me for my birthday and you feel the need to do so spending money, then please either take me out to dinner and come spend some time with me or donate to this and this charity. That's my choice for this birthday year. And that was sort of how I figured out how to get around it. Um, it would have been a lot easier for me if I had had um, vocabulary to advocate for myself earlier, especially in social context. Yeah, well, and I think what you're talking about, sorry, Carol, is like the vocabulary piece, right, is like, we there's so many and this is, I think, something that happens in general in society, right? Like there's so many societal pressures on what we should be doing, on the milestones we should be achieving, on what's supposed to happen in life. Right. Which, frankly, I think, you know, we all kind of start to realize, um, you know, hey, guess what? That's really not what life looks like. And all these shoulds or musts are not actually so representative of like any individual experience. Um, but I think so much of it is. Um, you know, they're kind of concrete descriptors. And so in a lot of ways, it's kind of easier for the Aspie brain to pick up on those should or must statements. But then they like a lot of individuals get so latched onto them that it can become really difficult to then be like, wait a minute. Hey, guess what? Maybe I don't have to follow that should or must way of doing or mm -hmm. thinking. Um, and I think that that's where like a lot of the work is like, well, what do you really want? And not what do you think you're supposed to want? What do you actually want? And teaching that I feel like is extremely hard for those of us on the spectrum, because along the way, we've gotten so programmed not to make a choice that the decision isn't up to us, that we don't have options, that it's never how we want it to be. It's just how we have to accept it to be that the there's been no practice and how to do that. Mm -hmm. So there's mm -hmm. been no habits formed and all the things that we need so much in learning behaviors in terms of being on the spectrum, the repetition, the real time practice, all of that stuff. You've gotten none of it. And yet the world expects you to suddenly have this ability to do this for yourself when you've never right. had a chance to sort of uh, internally explore what the answers to those questions are at all. Right. Can, can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. Of course. Okay. So, so, so your fact, your story is fast. Everything. It's like, yes, yes, yes. You're all mm -hmm. right. Yes. <laughs> but so how old were you when you first had the first birthday experience? Um, I'm going to say three or so. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Three or so. And you hated it. 
but you yeah. were told you should have liked it, right? Mm-hmm. And who were your who were the most important people in the world to you? Your uh, that, well, yeah, my mother, my grandmother, yeah. At that time, right? Yeah. And and like we can go and look at any like psychology one oh one and say, Well, who are our models? Who are mm-hmm. the most important who are the people we want to please? It's them. So if we get those messages and, and when I do psychodramas and I bring an adult, let's say of thirty five, back to when he was or she was five, four, you see that's where the message started mm-hmm. and that's where that started. And then you can trace how then whatever you did to counteract and protect yourself because of what happened, becoming an introvert, becoming more saying, you know, whatever you did that you could do until you had the words to say, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, those traits of, of, you know, trying to please those traits of, those stay with us and people there, there's a disbelief until sort of they look back and they go, I was five or four. The first time I was told I was not good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that so much of like all of these kinds of like challenges with self-advocacy really come from, you know, like this kind of, overdrive approach to like shaping individuals to fit a mold in society. Right. And, and so I think that so much of, you know, this work is kind of undoing, well, Hey, guess what? Maybe we don't have to be in that mold. And I think, you know, for our listeners out there, I think that's really kind of the message is like, you don't have to fit into any specific mold really like your social world can look how you want it to look. And the goal of any of the interventions that we're talking about is to help you get to wherever you want to be in terms of your social world looking how you want it to look. So if it's within the workplace, within a dating world, within friendships, with, you know, whatever that might be, it's, and it's really about developing the strategies and the tools so that that component of your life looks how you want it to look and not like in line with how other people want it to look. Here, here. Absolutely. A hundred percent agree. A hundred percent. You are you. You get to be you. That's it. Absolutely. So I think that's a good note to end our our show on today. (laughs) We'd like to thank you very much, Carol, for joining us. Um, We'll go ahead and put all of your links up in your phone number so people can find you. Um, But please go ahead and and check them out um, and and see what Carol's up to. Maybe it's the right choice for you for how to get out there and do things. (laughs) Um, If you're looking for us, you can find Different Brains, of course, at differentbrains.org. And you can check out their Twitter at DiffBrains, or you can look for them on Facebook. If you're looking for me, you can find me at www.beccalaurie.com. Or you can look for me on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. You can also find Walter on Instagram at Sir Walter Underfoot. And if you're looking for me, I can be found via my website, which is www.spectrumpsychservices.com, or via my email, which is drcody at spectrumpsychservices.com. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and don't hesitate to send questions to spectrumlyspeaking at gmail.com. And let's keep the conversation going. Spectrumly Speaking is a production of Different Brains. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.